Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is the author Brad Schreiber. His book is Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. Welcome, Brad. Thank you very much. I've been looking forward to talking with you, Steve. Yeah, me too. Especially your book is, you know, very timely at the moment and uh, it goes back quite a ways and it's incredible that it can still be relevant today. So let's get into it. You write that politically motivated music has its American origins in the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. Most people remember folks like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger probably. But you start with a guy from the late 1800s and the early 1900s, a guy I'd never heard before. And it's a tragic tale of Joe Hill. Could you give our listeners the dime version of Joe Hill? Sure. Well, some listeners may be familiar with I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill last night, and Joan Baez did a definitive version of that song. But Joe Hill was a Swedish-American immigrant who was a labor organizer, and he was railroaded for the murder of a man in Salt Lake City. Uh, He was executed in 1915 despite a lot of intercession, let's say, a lot of advocacy on the part of the entire nation, including Woodrow Wilson. But famously, before they took him away to the firing squad, he said, don't mourn, organize. And some of the songs that he wrote included the sweet by and by, which talked about pie in the sky, uh, a phrase that we still use to this day. And that specific song, Steve, sort of made people aware that we don't know what waits for us in the afterlife, and we need rights now, and we need justice now. And that's why I start with Joe Hill. Yeah, it's a perfect opening because it's so tragic. I guess he chose the firing squad, I think, over hanging or something. You know, an amazing tale. We mentioned Woody Guthrie, who everybody knows, and he was a shining light for Pete Seeger, who would come after him. And Mm -hmm. uh, the latter encountered a great deal of strife due to his convictions. Well, what I would say about Woody Guthrie before we get into Pete Seeger is that he was a beloved character. Despite some leftist leanings, he wasn't castigated like Pete Seeger was for his socialist and communist party leanings. Woody Guthrie wrote a song called Do Re Me, and it was about all of the immigrants during the Dust Bowl trying to get into California. And it really resonates with what's going on today with Trump's attitude about immigrants, because tens of thousands of Dust Bowl immigrants were turned away at the California border. Wow. Part of the song is, if you ain't got the do-re-me boys, you ain't got the do-re-me, then you better go back to beautiful Texas, <laughs> Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. Wow. So if you didn't have $50 in the 30s, you didn't get into the state of California, even if your state was devastated. Of course, Pete Seeger loved Woody. Uh, So many people did. Dylan, of course, Bruce Springsteen. The list goes on and on. Seeger was ruined for 17 years because he and the Weavers had leftist leanings. He was never proved to be a member of the Communist Party. But, of course, that didn't matter during the McCarthy era. And of all people, to bail him out, Steve, 17 years later, it was the Smothers Brothers. Right, I remember that. Yeah, their 1967 replacement series, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, where they had him do a song called The Big Muddy, which resonated with the Vietnam War that was going on. 17 years of no television appearances until the Smothers Brothers Well, the 60s is probably the most famous of all the political music eras. There is a lot lot at stake, you know, the Vietnam War, obviously, uh, civil rights, those kinds of things. And, you know, I mentioned Bob Dylan. He might be the most famous from that time. 
But he would also famously and demonstrably turn against folk and political music for some time. Can you explain what was his reasoning for that? I'm fascinated by Dylan's change in direction. And a little bit of it, I think, can be attributed to the 1966 motorcycle accident, which made him basically not record or write music for a year and also think about what direction he wanted to go in. There's also a great documentary called Don't Look Back that D.A. Pennebaker did. And you see the British press in 1965 just tear into Dylan. And he was trying to be patient. And they kept asking him, what do these songs mean? And do you think you're some kind of savior? And what puts you above other musicians? And finally, Dylan lost his temper, and he looked at the British press and said, hey, did you ask the Beatles these kinds of questions? (laughs) (laughs) Also, the U.S. press, because he was elevated to a status that previously had never been experienced in popular music, he himself didn't want to be put there. And like all artists, of course, he wanted to evolve, and you got into more epic songs, great songs like Desolation Row and and, uh, Tangled Up in Blue, which... While they moved away from being specifically political, Steve, they still talked about human interaction and doubt, and they were sociopolitical in their own way. Yeah, definitely. A lot of those ones, especially the one you mentioned, Desolation Row, and even, even into some of the things he does today, they're veiled. But he didn't walk away completely. You know, you write that a lot of artists did not wish to participate in protest music because of a potential commercial backlash. Yeah, inevitably... This resonates with what's happening right now with professional sports in the United States. You see the NBA basically saying because of yet another shooting of a black unarmed youth by white policemen, we're not going to play. And I heard yesterday on television the fact that some of the announcers on ESPN were saying it's the ownership that needs to take over this movement, not the players, because the owners make the money and the owners control the league and the owners can put pressure onto legislators. Well, the same thing is true with a musician who wants to write protest music. If the owner of the label is afraid of putting out sociopolitical music, feels it won't make money or just doesn't politically believe what the artist believes, that's a problem. So you have to be an artist who is either brave enough to put out music or has enough control and sway to put out sociopolitical music. So I would not lay it on the doorstep of the artist necessarily. Huh. Well, you know, it's you have a great bit in your book. You mentioned the Beatles, and, and uh, George Harrison famously asked Dylan if he would play one of his older songs. And can you tell that story about Dylan and his reply? Oh, yeah. So that was the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden in New York. They sang together, by the way, on the song If Not For You by Dylan. Harrison made the tragic error of asking Bob Dylan during a rehearsal if for the concert for Bangladesh, if he would sing Blowing in the Wind. And I refer you to Bob Dylan's reaction to the British musical press when he looked at George Harrison and said, oh, are you going to sing I Want to Hold Your Hand? He didn't want to be sent back to that time. As much as the early and mid-60s made Bob Dylan, he didn't want to be defined by that, and he didn't want the pressure and the judgment of being an iconoclastic and great sociopolitical songwriter. Yeah, that's a great story, and it it makes that point clearly, especially with the Beatles all trying to escape their legacy with their solo work and things like that. I'm sure George must have winced a wee bit when uh, when Bob said (laughs) that to him. Yeah. So... Phil Oakes is another one. He launched his career shortly after Dylan, and he was hugely invested in protest music on topics from the Vietnam War to civil rights, but he paid quite a price. 
this is another example of an artist I really felt a commitment to write about, not only because Phil Oakes spent his whole career writing mostly sociopolitical music, but I actually knew his brother, Michael Oakes. We used to do the Michael Oakes archive on KCRW in Santa Monica, where I did some writing and producing. And it turns out there is a documentary about the Oakes brothers, and they both had bipolar disorder. So Phil Oakes was battling not only that disorder and hitting real low lows in his life, he was very affected by the suffering in the world. And Victor Hara, J-A-R-A, who was a, a Chilean songwriter, and basically the Phil Oaks of Chile, was murdered, you know, during the junta in the 70s, and that impacted Oaks a great deal, too. So he was a, a man who was so sensitive, and he had bipolar disorder, that it's probably not too surprising that inevitably he hung himself specifically. The last piece of music that he played, according to his sister, when he was staying with her in Far Rockaway, New York, was actually a beautiful song called Jim Dean of Indiana. And it was about James Dean, the actor, who died, you know, in an auto accident, but was also a highly sensitive individual. And I think it's fascinating that Phil Oaks chose a song that wasn't sociopolitical to be the last thing he played on a keyboard before he took his life. Another guy that you seem to be really fond of is P.F. Sloan. And you write quite a bit about him. And he wrote the massive protest hit, Eve of Destruction. And he's another guy who paid the price. I would say Phil Sloan had some of the worst luck in the history of pop music because he wrote a number one hit, Eve of Destruction, which castigated every imaginable societal ill. And then you had people who you and I would consider magnificent artists, Lennon, McCartney, Paul Simon, who all came out and criticized the song. So that had to hurt. Furthermore, Phil Sloan was working at a label called Dunhill, and there was a horrible executive named Jay Lasker who wanted to control Sloan's life and would not let him out of his contract, threatened his life, threatened his family's life, inevitably fired him and stole his royalties, which is why P.F. Sloan had a mental breakdown and basically was catatonic for a few years before he came back. So I refer sometimes when I'm talking about music is power to the two tragic Phil's, Phil Oak and Phil Sloan, who had it a lot rougher than most pop stars. Right. You mentioned Lennon and, and Paul Simon and some others. And why did they criticize P.F. Sloan in that song, Eve of Destruction? Any ideas? Steve, I really think that they believed in more subtlety in their songs, especially the Beatles. You know, She's Leaving Home is a beautiful song, and yet it's about parents not doing their job. They didn't write songs about Vietnam, per se. I think that they and Paul Simon and others felt that Eve of Destruction was too, quote-unquote, on the nose. Hmm. And I note in the book that while the the Beatles could make that argument. I don't think Paul Simon could. He did a song called A Simple Desultory Philippic, in which he basically made fun of Bob Dylan, subterranean homesick blues, and basically listed all the people that he didn't like in the world. I'm going to have to check that out. So here he is saying, I don't like this kind of music. He's making fun of it, but he's also recreating a Dylan-esque 65-ish tune. I think that they were wrong to criticize him. If it's not your taste, fine. Don't turn on your fellow musician because you have a different taste. We're speaking with Brad Schreiber, the author of Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. One of the interesting things I found about your book, and we'll kind of spread it out a little bit here, is that it's, it wasn't just the politics of the day. There's a lot of, of a broader material that you cover, you know, social issues, and like the title says, a will to change. You know, but the Vietnam War was an obvious target with some of the most potent 
music, two of my favorites, and I'm not a huge Hendrix fan. I came to Machine Gun on the Band of Gypsies very early, and I always thought that was just one of the songs that sounds like a war going on. And of course, his take on the Star Spangled Banner is legendary. Uh, what did you think of those two songs? Well, Steve, I'm afraid that I am a very big Jimi Hendrix fan. <laughs> uh, Machine Gun is really interesting because it is, in fact, a song that's instrumental and recreates the sounds of war. Miles Davis, who wanted to record with Jimmy, and by the way, was the only musician who attended Jimmy's funeral in Renton, Washington. Hmm. Miles loved Machine Gun. It was his favorite piece by Hendrix. And of course, the Star Spangled Banner, everybody talks about that as one of the iconic musical moments in general of the 60s. It's a song that basically Jimmy would do live every once in a while. And it was an inspiration to do it at Woodstock. The irony being that by the time he performed that at nine in the morning on the last day of Woodstock, most of the people had left. Right. Instead of half a million people, there were maybe thirty to 40,000 people. And thank God for Michael Wadley shooting the documentary Woodstock, where no one would have seen that unbelievable performance. Yeah, and I think in your book, you may quote people who were against his take on that. And I think it was him who just talked about how beautiful he thought it was. It was discussed on the Dick Cavett show, and the Jimi Hendrix appearance is really quite wonderful in the interview. You see everything you need to know about Jimi as a person. He's shy, but he's sly. Hmm. At one point, Cavett asked him, uh, do you rehearse a lot? Do you get up every day and play music? And Jimi says, I try to get up every day. <laughs> got a huge laugh from the audience. And you also saw that he was completely different on stage than he was as a person, because spiritually he was very evolved. He wrote songs that were not on the nose politically. He liked to use poetic and lyrical references rather than dating that he was, for example, against the war. He had doubts about that because he was in the 101st Airborne right. and made great friends with people, including Billy Cox, who joined him in his band, inevitably Band of Gypsies. So he personally didn't believe in war, but he also understood why some people would wind up in the armed forces, and he avoided directly attacking the Vietnam War. Another interesting thing about him, his humility. He knew of his popularity, but he was very down-to-earth. He came from an extremely horrifying Dickensian background. You know, this take, this whole piece that you write, is, is fascinating for a different reason in that it's so broad, but there's a point to everything. We talked about artists that would make protest music against things other than politics. And a couple that really surprised me was Leslie Gore of It's My Party mm -hmm. fame. And she fascinatingly took on some social issues in the song You Don't Own Me. 1963, You Don't Own Me. You know, I make the argument that Leslie Gore, who was forced to do songs that were given to her by the label and not write her own songs or use other songs by artists she liked, Leslie Gore created arguably the first feminist pop song with You Don't Own Me. What's also intriguing about that is 1963, 1964 is when Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, the book, came out. The first book in American publishing history that questioned the role that men gave women in society and said, stop treating us merely as housewives and mothers. We have a place in the workplace and you need to look at us differently. So I'm fascinated by 63 and 60 being the beginning of a movement for women that really didn't reach its apex until the 70s. And the other thing I love to say about You Don't Own Me is 
most people don't know that the producer of that single who fought for her and insisted that she record it with the label was a guy who'd only been in the music industry a couple of years. Quincy Jones really started off on the right foot by insisting that the label do You Don't Own Me. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something you wouldn't expect from It's My Party. You know, conversely, also you have... Uh, Janice Ian, you know, at 17, and, you know, it's kind of soft pop, very mellow stuff, but she took on some issues such as interracial relationships and sexual identity, didn't she? Yeah, well, Society's Child in 65 just created an incredible hailstorm of reaction, not only of people who appreciated a song story about a black boy and a white girl who fall in love and she eventually rejects him because of the pressure on her from society. Interestingly, Janice Ian and Leslie Gore have a lot in common, not only that they had to hide the fact that they were both gay women at that time in society, it would not be accepted, but also that they both had their first major hits when they were 16 years old. You know, you mentioned kind of the racial divide, and, you know, that's obviously still something today that we see every day. Marvin Gaye would make one of the greatest albums, period, in what's going on. But it was the first political statement, you know, certainly from him, but also from Motown Records. And Barry Gordy famously wanted to stay away from that stuff and and stick with, quote unquote, pop music. Barry Gordy literally told Marvin Gaye that the single What's Going On was the worst record he'd ever heard. Wow. And Marvin Gaye, who had a a lot of leverage by that time at Motown, basically put all of his chips on the table. And he said to Barry Gordy, you either let me do this album or I am leaving your label. And something that could never happen in the music industry today happened. An executive named Barney Ale went to uh, Marvin Gaye and said, you know what? Don't worry about Barry. We're going to put out 100,000 of these and see how they do. And if it catches on, then we'll be able to basically commit fully. So without Barry Gordy's approval, they put out 100,000 copies of what's going on. It blew up, of course, successfully. And then Barry Gordy was committed because it made money. He didn't believe that sociopolitical music could make money, and he was afraid of a backlash. But when he saw the success, he said to Marvin Gaye, and this is astounding, but it's it's really true, Steve. I, I, I double-checked this. He said to Marvin Gaye, okay, you can make the album, but I want you to make it in less than 30 days. Oh, jeez. And if you can't, forget it. I don't want to spend any more time on it. And in 10, 12-hour sessions, Marvin Gaye did all the tracks on what's going on. Wow. So when you mentioned the record that they put out without Gordy's knowledge, it was just the single then? It was just a single, and then they put out another 100,000, and that's when Barry Gordy said, hey, what the hell's going on here? I didn't approve this. But Barry Gordy was both a very positive and negative force on the music industry. Everybody knows about the quality control at Motown, but that was a good thing because otherwise undisciplined musical artists learned how to dance and present themselves, and that was a very positive thing. But the flip side, if you'll excuse the expression is that Barry Gordy tried to run a label like an assembly line in Detroit, where he, in fact, had worked. And that is not the way you get the best out of artists. However, somebody like Norman Whitfield, an in-house producer, became really a creative force who would go to artists and say, here's this great song, and let's do something political temptations, and then you get something like Ball of Confusion. So 
in a sense, Barry Gordy, after he saw that sociopolitical music could actually make money, he went, okay, I'm not going to judge it. And Norman, you go and do what you want to do with the Supremes and the Temptations. And if you do a sociopolitical song, we'll roll the dice. Yeah, and, and a lot of the uh, musicians there, Edwin Starr with War, and, and even Stevie Wonder, who, who joined so young, but they would all wade into the, the politics soon enough, wouldn't they? Yeah, you could say that really at Motown, the success of what's going on paved the way for artists like Stevie Wonder to do sociopolitical songs like, you know, Living in the City and, and so forth. Right. And thank goodness for that. And thank goodness because it had a ripple effect even outside of Motown. You know, psychedelic soul was one thing, but sociopolitical psychedelic soul, <laughs> well, nobody was quite ready for that until they saw that it too could make money in the 60s. And with what's going on, you know, it's such a beautiful song and asks, you know, kind of an open-ended question. And then you have James Brown, who put out Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and highly relevant today. But what was the reaction to that song at that time? I'm really moved by this story. I can really sum this up, Steve, by talking about James Brown's trip to Africa. Uh, much like Malcolm X, James Brown had a spiritual awakening by visiting Africa and seeing black people as the majority, not the minority. And one of the things he saw when he visited there uh, was young black kids who were carrying his LPs under their arm. They may not even have had a record player, but they knew who he was. They knew what he represented in America. And being in a village carrying a James Brown album under your arm made you acknowledge the power and the beauty of his music and what it stood for. And of course, Say It Loud was an anthem for an entire race of people in America who were dealing with prejudice. And sadly, we're seeing with police violence today that, you know, we need to work a lot harder to deal with these kinds of problems that James Brown was really addressing back in the 60s. I think today, if I'm not mistaken, is the 65th anniversary of the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech. How did uh, James Brown, his appeal for a Martin Luther King holiday really damaged his career, didn't it? I would say that what damaged his career the most was trying to align himself with Richard Nixon. Nixon became unpopular, of course, as the Vietnam War dragged on. James Brown, as we know, had a need for respect. He'd grown up poor, and we know a lot of the circumstances of his life. He wanted Richard Nixon to advocate for a national holiday. Nixon, of course, was devious. His attitude was, if I can get a photo of me and James Brown, quote-unquote soul brother number one, I am going to be able to siphon off a large part of the black vote that goes to Democrats. And, of course, Nixon did absolutely nothing to get that Martin Luther King holiday. But on the other side, James Brown immediately had a huge backlash from his followers. They um, had placards at shows right after that photo of him and Nixon came out. Sold out, brother number one. Jeez. Oh, wow. And the sort of denigration of James Brown by his former fans, I think it's fair to say, led to his partaking of drugs and alcohol, the rage he felt that was acted out in violence against women, and his downward spiral. And I think it's incredibly tragic that just being seen with Richard Nixon could start that cycle because of James Brown's importance, not only in sociopolitical music, but inventing funk music. Right. You know, one of the 
great things about your book is it's broad scope. And, and there are some things that I hadn't really thought about. And I'll take the who. Uh, we'll move abroad to the UK. And I don't think many people consider them necessarily a political or sociopolitical band. But you talk about how my generation spoke to the youth. And the BBC actually banned it. But you write that the masterpiece Tommy, quote, delivered a message to all young people who felt disenfranchised, powerless, and without direction. The best way to illustrate this story, Steve, is to talk about a little-known huge fan of the early Who, a guy named Irish Jack, Irish Jack Lyons, who was a stutterer. And in the early days, he used to come to all the London gigs of the Who. So they knew him. He became a friend of the band. And once he went backstage and basically said to Pete Townsend, you got to speak for us because no one will listen to us. And um, I can't explain. Where do you think that came Mm. from? It came from Irish Jack, my generation. It came from not only Irish Jack, but all the disadvantaged young kids from London who basically came from the same background as the who itself. And you see this echo in their work. It's not about specific issues about, you know, poverty or war or racism, but it is generally over and over again about disenfranchisement. It's about following leaders who let you down. Tommy and Quadrophenia are all about that kind of thing. They probably represent that theme better than any other group in rock history. Yeah, that's a fascinating take. You know, it's interesting. The British youth of that period were impacted by two world wars. The economy was in shambles. It all sounds a bit like the scene that the Sex Pistols sprang from. And and right on cue, the government jumps in and tries to ban God Save the Queen. Yeah. They even charged the band with a violation of the Indecent Advertising Act for the name of that record. Listen, in Parliament, Steve, they Mm -hmm. literally had a discussion as to whether they should hang the members of the Sex Pistols from Traitor's Gate at the Tower of London, where they used to hang people who spoke out against the realm. I mean, obviously, that wasn't going to happen, but it it was discussed. It's hard for us in the United States to understand how offensive it would be to the general public in England to make fun of the Queen. The best illustration would be when John Lennon with the Beatles just offhandedly said, oh, you know, we're we're bigger than Jesus at this point. Mm -hmm. There was no problem in the United Kingdom when that phrase was put in journalism. But when it hit journalism in the South, in the United States, you know what happened. They started burning and crushing Beatle records. There was a station that was burned to the ground in the South because of what Lennon said. Well, people who dressed like punks in England when the Sex Pistols came out were physically attacked on the street by people. They were infuriated. The monarchy to the psyche of people in England is the basic equivalent of what Jesus Christ and the church are to a lot of people in this country, especially in the South. Well, at least they spent a lot of time discussing the true meaning of bollocks, which I found amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a funny story. You know, in Music is Power, there's a whole section about them being threatened with jail for using offensive language, bollocks, you know, testicles. And then they proved, of course, that it had a different meaning centuries before. 
But the thing that fascinated me, actually infuriated me about the Sex Pistols, was Malcolm McLaren, who I think was basically incompetent and disingenuous, and he just saw using the Sex Pistols and their outrageousness to sell records, and he didn't really care at all about any sociopolitical message. In fact, he would have preferred that they never talked about anything of importance. And I think that had they had a different manager, they would have lasted longer, and they would have inevitably, because John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, really was quite a clever lad. I think that they would have written songs that were more like topical songs that you would see from the Dead Kennedys. But Malcolm McLaren, I think, was a very negative force with that band. Well, you have one album, and it is ferocious, but... Uh... That's it. You know, that's their output. And uh, you mentioned the Dead Kennedys. And, you know, punk in the States was not nearly as political as it was in the UK. And the Dead Kennedys were the exception, starting with their name, which, you know, much like God Save the Queen, and you mentioned that, uh, the band had to know that that name would put a target on their back. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it did. And I guess East Bay Ray of, of the band was interviewed by a journalist from Vancouver. And early on, they were roundly criticized for using that name. And the, the journalist said, don't you think it's in bad taste to give your band that name? And East Bay Ray said, yeah, it is. But then so were the assassinations. Right, right. And of course, Yel Biafra, very smart guy, Eric Boucher, uh, wrote some terrific stuff. And both sides of the aisle, he attacked Jerry Brown, a Democrat. Of course, he hated Reagan later on and was writing music about Reagan's administration. And he wrote about uh, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge. So I think he was the exception to the rule in American punk. And you can see his commitment. You know, even after the band ended, he'd do spoken word stuff about political topics. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Brad Schreiber. He's the author of a book called Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. So rap music is the next big flashpoint of music after punk. And to my mind, 
the best of it was mm-hmm. overtly political. You know, Grandmaster Flash, NWA, Public Enemy. And they were arguably the black press of the day, bringing uniquely African-American issues to a much wider audience. Wider, not whiter, but both work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, W-I-D-E-R. Yes, yes but both uh, work. Well, you know, despite that, the crossover to white audiences with hip-hop music, rap, hip-hop, is phenomenal today. I write in, in Music is Power that in a way, NWA and Grandmaster Flash stumbled into songs that were angry and sociopolitical and that caught on. I think that Public Enemy, by the time we get to Chuck D and, and Public Enemy, we see a group that isn't doing it sort of because, oh, this might be interesting to try and we're angry. Their sociopolitical knowledge their maturation, let's say, was really exceptional. And I talk about 911 is a joke, Flavor Flav basically talking about a friend of his who got stabbed on the street. And when they called 911, instead of being there in a few minutes, they come 20 minutes later and their friend is dead. Even to this day, that issue still percolates. The response time to 911, the response time of police in general in the inner cities of America versus other areas. So I think Public Enemy basically built on what Grandmaster Flash had been doing with White Lines and so forth and so on, and really almost the apotheosis of sociopolitical hip-hop. If you look at it, they crafted it more like Marvin Gaye did with his What's Going On album, where the whole thing was of a piece. Those records, Public Enemy records, Fear of a Black Planet, and It Takes a Million to Hold Us Back, they are a, a piece, and you know you can pull some great songs out of there, but... If you listen to the whole thing start to finish, it's really powerful. Yeah, and it's no surprise that, you know, Spike Lee would want to use their music in in his film and that it would have a resonance throughout society. And inevitably, like I said, that it would cross over. The anger of young people is a constant. It's a universal. Oftentimes, the music that they listen to expresses the angst of young people who want to be free and independent, but don't have the wherewithal of the life experience, the money, et cetera, to do so. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. You know, the next person I wanted to discuss is one of my favorites, and I saw him a number of times, but Gil Scott Heron was very, very political and a definite influence on rap and, and also a cautionary tale again. Yeah. I'm glad that he resonates for you because his work meant a lot to me. One of the people I interviewed for Music is Power is Robert Muggy, who did Black Wax, a really wonderful documentary about Gil. There's so much to say about him. Johannesburg, he's talking about apartheid in South Africa when really there wasn't a lot of discussion of it. It's almost so obvious and so often discussed that the resonance, the power of the revolution will not be televised. Almost just, it's it's almost taken as a constant, and and sometimes it's it's warped. Uh, it's used in advertising and so forth and so on. But the power of his words, I think, inevitably elevated the power of the lyrics in general in hip hop. I would argue, just as good old Gil would argue that it didn't make enough of a difference. I also make this distinction that Gil Scott Heron's place in music also affected 
what we would see in poetry slams hmm. and the real beautiful and elegance and power of poetry in slams, especially people of color doing poetry. It all goes back to Gil Scott Heron. And I hope you won't mind. I, I generally don't bother with reading from my book when I do an interview, but there's one beautiful Gil quote that I wanted to read. Is that okay? Go for it. And it's about revolution. He says, revolution sounds like something that happens, like turning on a light switch. But it's moving a large object, and a lot of folks' efforts to push it in one direction or the other have to combine. And the people who are there when it finally moves visibly, when people finally realize that it's over here and it was over there, those are the people that get the credit for it. But I think that everybody who moved it a little bit further were folks that understood that you try and change things, not necessarily for yourself, but for your children and their children because you want things to be better by and by. For my money, it's the best description of understanding the gradual process of political change. Some things happen fast. Let's take down the Confederate statues and let's take down the flags. And some things come slowly. Let's change the laws about police unions and qualified immunity so that police will be responsible for shooting unarmed people. Still hasn't happened. But old Gil, he gets it. He gets some things are just part of the continuum, right? Well, 1974's Winter in America is easily as relevant today as it was, what is that, 46 years ago already? Jesus. Kudos to Brian Jackson, who, you know, did a lot of the backup music. The beauty and the power of, of Gil's words, like you say, Steve, really could stand on their own. And yes, he came to a, a tragic end. We know about it being jailed and crack, cocaine addiction. But even to the very end, you know, he was an artist. There's a really great New Yorker piece that illustrates what his life was like at the end. And he tells the writer from the New Yorker who, who wants to get him out of the house and just go out and eat because, you know, Gil is rail thin and he looks really bad. And the New Yorker journalist says, hey, Gil, let's go out and get some lunch. What do you say? And Gil says, I don't know. I heard that sunshine's not good for you. You know, he was, he was artistic to the end. You had mentioned the ability to put these really complicated messages into into songs and, and have them, you know, resonate with people of all ages, really. You know, Bob Marley might be one of the all-time activist songwriters. He was able to unite the heads of two feuding Jamaican political parties on his stage one night, and he even got shot for his take on politics. So Yeah. Well, again, I'm lucky because I'm personal friends with somebody who I think is authoritative on the life of an artist. In this case, it's Roger Steffens, who did a book called So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. Great book. And, you know, having known Marley and Bunny Whaler and everybody that you can imagine surrounding Marley, he did an oral history, just interviewed all of his friends and gave you such clear insight into the man, Bob Marley, as well as the artist. You know, Michael Manley of the PNP and Edward Siaga of the Jamaica Labor Party, the latter being backed by the CIA. Basically, those people were using the gangs in Kingston and other areas to fight each other and to hopefully advocate for those candidates. And you're right. There's a beautiful section in the book based on Roger Steffen's research about him bringing Siaga and Manley on stage together even after an assassination attempt at 56 Hope Road on him. And he, he literally pulls up his shirt and he shows the bullet wound. I mean, it's one of the most emotionally overwhelming moments in the history of any kind of music, let alone socio-political music. 
his wife Rita still has the bandage on her head where she was grazed by a bullet on stage that night, I believe. Yeah. And I also like to say that American listeners, and it's not their fault, sometimes don't understand the extent of Marley's impact on the world. In Nicaragua, soldiers on both sides of their civil war were singing stand-up. In Zimbabwe, Bob Marley went there after the rebels overthrew an authoritative regime, and he had tears in his eyes when he learned from some of the soldiers who had fought for Zimbabwe's freedom that they had been singing Bob Marley songs as they went into action. Unbelievable tribute. He paid quite a price. Luckily, he came out until cancer claimed him. But uh, it's interesting. We spoke earlier about that, how people feared a price for speaking out. And perhaps no one in recent memory paid a bigger price than the Dixie Chicks, now simply, of course, the Chicks. But that wasn't even for a song, but rather just a comment made on stage at a concert. Yeah, this was uh, nine days before the invasion of Iraq. The Dixie Chicks were in London, and Natalie Maines yells out, we all want y'all to know that we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas like us. George W. Bush being from Texas like the Dixie Chicks. Well, no one in the U.K. thought much about it because they were 90 percent, 90 percent against the invasion of Iraq. And despite that, Tony Blair took them to war. Over here, 70 percent of the United States was pro-invasion of Iraq and believed there were weapons of mass destruction. And, of course, in Music is Power, I talk about how the country music establishment, the fans, the labels, country radio, all turned against them. And here I'm, again, very lucky. I had a personal relationship with Barbara Koppel, who did the documentary Shut Up and Sing, which is about what the Dixie Chicks experienced from that backlash. And she gave me some brilliant insight into how corporations are now like governments within governments and how radio turned against the Dixie Chicks and had enough power to destroy them. And it's even more so today because of vertical integration. And so every time a corporation takes over others in its field, not only do the consumers have less decision, but you're seeing more social control. And Barbara Koppel was just brilliant on that. I was very happy to to get her quotes on the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, and the title of that doc, uh, it should be noted, was, I believe, I forget who said it, but was it an artist or a radio station? Yeah, Shut Up and Sing. And now we're hearing that same phrase, Steve. Again, I refer you to the NBA basically uh, stopping play to honor the latest victim of police on black youth violence. And a player referred to, we're not going to just shut up and dribble. So you see the positive appropriation of some of these sayings in society and being used. I can't breathe, that phrase, Eric Garner. I was on a, a show talking about music is power, and I said to the interviewer, I don't understand why we don't have songs coming out now that are called I Can't Breathe. Right. It's a perfect slogan to basically commemorate in a song. And then I went home and looked online, and it turned out there were two songs oh. already by female songwriter-singers called I Can't Breathe. Yeah, there's so much more in your book that we haven't covered. I'm going to just ask everybody to read this book, hopefully before the November elections, because it's very pertinent, very relevant, and and it's a great piece of, of musical history as well. I wanted to get your thoughts on protest music today, because, you know, it seems that these times are as dark and scary as the ones that came before, certainly in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Is there protest music out there today? And who is it? And, and how is it consumed these days? You know, it's not radio. Uh, you know, what are you aware of? Well, in some ways, 
this is the golden age of being a musician and or a songwriter because you can write the music, you can record it and mix it at home, you can disseminate it from your home. I'm not saying that it automatically is going to make you a huge pop star. But for example, I had a friend of mine who's a documentary filmmaker who saw me talk about Music is Power in Berkeley at a bookstore and said, my friend Jill Sobele just um, did a new song called Giving It to the Lib. So I went online on YouTube, and I hadn't heard of this song. It had just come out. And there's this great animation, and the song is about COVID-19, the mm. coronavirus. And then the song is sung in the voice of someone who's very country and very right-wing, saying we're going to give it to the libs, you know, because they want to mm. control us and make us wear masks. And by the end of the song and the end of the animation, the person who's singing the song is in a hospital bed, giving it to the lips. I think that people really have to investigate in order to find that music, but I think there's more of it than ever. And from different artists, Barbara Streisand, I don't know if you know this, Steve, Barbara Streisand wrote an anti-Trump song. I mean, it's coming from so many different areas. I think we need more songs addressing racism via policing because it's such an important topic now. Whenever there is a time of political conflict, it's also a time where you see more socio-political music. It's a fascinating topic, and I want to thank you for joining us today. And Brad Shriver's book is Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the World to Change. It's a compendium of stories and artists and music types for a lot of different political and socio-political and cultural takes. Thank you very much for joining us today, Brad. I appreciate it. Me too, Steve. It was great to talk with you. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.